At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We eagerly wait with anticipation for the return of Jesus, when He will make everything wrong, right. In a way, He's always reigned over all things, but on the other hand, His saving grace has received pushback and rejection from the evil of this world. Join us in our new series, Thy Kingdom Come, His Reign in Our Lives where we'll learn what the reign of Jesus truly means for us believers and how we, as the body of Christ, can continue spreading his name until he returns. You often hear us talk about the fact that we are spiritual family, and uh, that extends beyond just our gatherings here on Sunday. That means we rejoice together, like over baptisms today. But that also means that we mourn together when uh, we experience the loss of loved ones. This week, uh, one of uh, the great men of our church went on to be with the Lord, Lynn Allen. Lynn and his wife, Penny, have been a part of Woodside and Troy Baptist for a long, long time. As a matter of fact, uh, if you come uh, ever to our early morning service, uh, Penny is normally one of the sweetest smiling faces you see at our Connect desk. Lynn, for many, many years, helped to build the uh, sets for our live nativity during Christmas time. And if you've not experienced that over 20,000 people from our community come to our live nativity, and Lynn was a part of that. He was one of the faithful, quiet servants here at Woodside. He made his transition after a long battle with cancer this week. We're going to be celebrating Lynn's life uh, coming up this Thursday at 10 a.m. I want to uh, ask you two things. Number one, to be praying for his family. Pray in particular for Penny, his bride. Pray for his children, Amy and Todd. But if you're available, please join us this Thursday uh, at uh, 10 a.m. as we celebrate Lynn's life. Amen? Thinking about um, the fact that we're having a funeral this week is a reminder to me, this is my fourth funeral in as many weeks. Three of them I would put in the category as being somewhat unexpected. Um, Some would even argue untimely if it were not for the sovereignty of God. But it is a reminder to me of the urgency we need to have when we gather together. This gathering is not just for social uh, experience. It's not just for us to be able to sing a few of our, our songs that we enjoy or to hear great instruments and musicians. There's something deeper going on here. This morning, I was thinking about the words of John chapter 20, verse number 31. It's here that the apostle John writes these words. He says, I write this to you so that you might believe that Jesus is the, the Christ the son of God, and that upon believing you might have life in his name. And I thought about that and I said, that's the reason. The reason why we sing our songs is because we want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God, and that upon believing you might have life in his name. That's the reason why we preach. The reason for all of our preaching, no matter who's standing up here delivering the word of God to you, is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that upon believing, you might experience life in his name. That's the reason for our service. The reason why we serve our community, our neighbors, and the nations is because we want people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that upon believing, you might know life 
in his name. How many want people to believe in Jesus? How many have that as a deep, deep desire? So that begs the broader question, what do you believe about Jesus? It's been said, it's been said that what a person thinks when asked what they believe about Jesus is the most important thing about that person. I believe that to be true. And so today, as we look at Mark's gospel, chapter three, I'm gonna ask you to consider, what do you believe about Jesus? Now, while you're turning to Mark's gospel, I'm gonna read to you a couple of famous quotes from people who were pretty well known and what they said about Jesus. And you evaluate these quotes. You tell me whether or not you think these quotes are commendable, if they are praiseworthy, as these folks share what they believe about Jesus. First, Ralph Waldo Emerson. How many heard that name in school? He's a great American essayist and philosopher. Here's what he said about Jesus. He says, Jesus Christ belonged to the true race of prophets. He saw with open eye the mystery of the soul. He is esteemed as one of the greatest of men. He is esteemed as one of the greatest of men. Is that commendable? Is that praiseworthy? Is that an accurate description of who Jesus is? Consider that for a moment. Another quote from Fidel Castro. You've heard that name before. Longtime dictator of uh, Cuba. Here's what he said, and it might surprise you what he said about Jesus. He says, Jesus Christ is an extraordinary figure. He is a symbol of all the best ideas that sustain us. He is a symbol of all the best ideas that sustain us. What do you think about that statement? Is that commendable? Is that praiseworthy? Is that an accurate description of who Jesus is? What about this? Uh, famed professor, and by famed, I just mean that he is well known, uh, Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. He's an atheist, over three million copies sold. He's a professor at uh, Oxford University. He says this, the point I wanna make was that Jesus was a good man and that, and that a man of his time had to be a religious man because everybody was. But I suspect that if he had the knowledge we have today, he probably would be an atheist and would probably have been a good moral man. What do you think, is that commendable? Is that praiseworthy? Is that an accurate statement of who Jesus is? You know, the problem with these statements is not that they lack in flattery. Each one of these would say that Jesus was a good man. But the problem is, is that Jesus doesn't just declare himself to be a good man. If you take the Bible seriously, if you take the historical account of what Jesus said about himself, there is but one problem with all of these statements. The famed uh, Oxford professor C.S. Lewis, who also wrote in defense of the Christian faith, and he also wrote a number of very creative uh, books, and uh, many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia, probably his most famous, not by far his only or his best in my opinion, or maybe you've seen the movies. Uh, he said this, the problem is, is that Jesus declared himself to be Lord. 
If Jesus hadn't declared himself to be Lord, then maybe it'd be okay for you and I and the rest of these to say that he's a symbol of all the best ideas that sustain us or that he is in a line of great prophets or that he is a great moral teacher. But here's what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, we must stop saying the foolish thing that I am willing to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but not God. Jesus went through great pains to declare himself to be Lord of all. If it is true, then he is God. If the claim is false, then either he said it knowing it was false, in which case he's a liar, or he said it not knowing it was false, in which case he was mad or a lunatic. Therefore, we are left with three logical options, either God or he is a liar or lunatic. So what is Jesus? Is he Lord of all as he declared himself to be, or is he a liar or a lunatic? Now, I don't know where C.S. Lewis got this trilemma or this framework for evaluating the life of Jesus, uh, but Pastor John MacArthur and his dealing with the passage we're going to look at today says that it's a high probability that Lewis formulated this from looking at the verses we're going to examine today. So let's look at these verses, verses 20 through 35. And the reason why is because we're going to see some declare Jesus as a lunatic, others declare Jesus as a liar, and Jesus declaring himself to be Lord. And when it's all said and done, you and I are going to have to make a decision. But make no mistake about it, what weighs in the balance is our eternal destinies. And not only the eternal destiny of our souls, but maybe for those that we love around us who are watching our lives to inform them on who Jesus is. Chapter 3, verse number 20 says this. Then he, referring to Jesus, went home, probably referring to his hometown, and the crowd gathered again so that they, referring to his disciples, could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Verse number 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, uh, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Verse 31, and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, uh, they sent to him and called him. 
and a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is absolutely astounding to me. For anyone who knows what rejection feels like, you can readily identify with this moment in Jesus' life. In a moment where everything seems to be building momentum and uh, the ministry of Jesus is growing in its reach and its impact, so much so that a crowd is gathered around him, the press of which makes it almost impossible for them to be able to even eat. That's how popular he had grown among the masses, that those who were closest to him and the religious leaders of his day rejected him, rejected him boldly, Bluntly, blatantly, they rejected him. We shouldn't be surprised, the scripture goes on to declare, that if they rejected the Son of God, that they too will reject us who follow him. Friends, I'm not going to mince words. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There's often a social cost that comes along with following Christ. You may have noticed that this uh, particular passage gives us two stories Two stories. One story, the story of his family, bookends another story, the story of his encounter with the religious leaders. Let's just take each one of them separately. But as we look at both of these, I want you to consider how Jesus, what he does to compel us to commit our lives to him. Again, that's what this gathering is all about. That's why I'm delivering this message, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and that upon believing, you might know life in him, in his name. So, what did we learn from the religious leaders of his day, the scribes, as they are called in this particular passage? I think what we're going to learn, here's a big idea of our text today, is that Jesus' reign calls for our ultimate allegiance. That ultimately, this is what Jesus is after. He is after you and I making him the centerpiece of our lives. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is that Christ is the center of your life. How many know, those of you who are followers of Jesus, would declare yourselves to be such, that our jobs should not be the centerpiece of our lives? Amen? That was weak. Our jobs should not be the center of our lives. Amen? Amen. Our possessions should not be the center of our lives. Amen. Amen. Our hobbies should not be the center of our lives. Amen. Amen. Our recreation should not be the centerpiece of our lives. Amen. Amen. Now I'm going to step on some toes. Our families should not be the centerpiece of our lives. Amen. Amen. Those children and grandbabies should not be the centerpiece of our lives. Amen. Amen. They're sweet sinners, but not the centerpiece of our lives. Jesus Christ is the center of our lives if we are a follower of him, but that's only if we've declared him to be Lord. But the religious leaders of his day declared him to be a liar, inauthentic, incredible, uh, unbelievable, lacking credibility. Verse number 22 says this, That the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, 
Now there's a debate textually on whether or not this should be translated Beelzebub or Beelzebel. Beelzebub meaning Lord of the Flies that refers back to uh, the agricultural reality of swarms of locusts who would eat crops, who would destroy even cattle. And for uh, an agrarian society, that would be seen as an ultimate enemy, a work of the devil. And Satan was often referred to as the Lord of the Flies. Or Beelzebel which is Lord of the Bells, Bell worship being the greatest and most significant idol worship of the Canaanite people, the people surrounding Israel. And he would have been, Satan would have been known as a Lord of the Bells, this chief of all demons. But either way, what becomes very clear upon a little bit further reading is that what they were trying to claim that Jesus was not a man sent by God, nor was his miracles, the many good works, the many miracles that he had done among them, motivated by God. But no, they said, by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. What do you think about his miracles? What do you think about his teachings? Are they the word of God or the word of the devil? This has been picked up not only by teachers in his generation, but I can name you many, many books that are written by atheists of our day, like Christopher Hitchens, who wrote the book, God uh, God is Not Good, in which he argues that God is a moral monster and that Jesus should be deemed as such as well, because his morality often is out of step with ours. This is a theme that is carried on to our day. What about you? Do you agree with the scribes and the Pharisees? I hope not. You see what Jesus did, the first thing that he does for them and for many of us in order to compel us to come to him is he challenges our religious assumptions. They had so many bad and false religious assumptions It would take me hours to enumerate all of their bad and false religious assumptions. And by the way, as an aside, it would take me days to enumerate all of our false religious assumptions. You know, the false things that we try to mix into Christian faith, stuff that we got from memes or from social media posts or tweets. Be careful if your theology primarily comes from tweets. There's something dangerous about that. What we believe about Jesus should come from what he said about himself in the word. So Jesus begins to tell them a story, a story that challenges the logic that he was casting out demons through the power of Satan or through the power of demons. He says, can a house divided against itself stand? Surely a house divided against itself has come already to an end. The fact of the matter is, if Satan is casting out Satan, then Satan is already defeated and destroyed. It's illogical. Why would Satan cast out demons? That totally undermines the work that he's trying to do. Satan is the chief promoter of demons and hell and destruction and death. Why would he come and heal the sick? Why would he come and preach freedom and deliverance? Why would he come offering grace only to upset his own agenda? No, no, friends, when you hear the message of God's grace, 
when you hear the message of repent, come to Christ, when you hear the message that there is salvation and life found in Jesus alone, don't worry that that's Satan. It's not. It is God. It is always God calling you to deepen your commitment to Jesus. It's never the work of the enemy, the wicked one. Jesus says it is illogical for you guys to think that way. But then he moves from logic to the spiritual reality of what was happening in the moment. No, he says this. He says, listen, it's impossible for uh, a strong man to have his house plundered unless a stronger man comes in and binds him up. He's referring to himself. He says, no, I'm not doing this by the work of Satan. I'm doing this by the power of someone who is greater. I have come and I have bound up Satan by the power of God. I declare these things to you so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that upon believing, you might know life in his name. He says the enemy comes to kill, to steal, to destroy. That's all Satan wants to do in your life. And he comes and he offers fool's gold. It looks attractive on the outside. The partying, the sex, drugs, whatever you're into, all of it, the life apart from Christ, success and accomplishments and acclaim, all of them look really attractive. But in the end, what does it profit a man or a woman if they gain the whole world and you got trophies and degrees and zeros in your bank account and you stand before a living God and your soul is cast into hell. God doesn't want that for you. And not only is following Jesus good for the life that is to come, eternity, but it is good for this life as well. The greatest way for us to make sense of this life is through Jesus. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. I believe in Jesus for the same reason I believe in the sun. Not just because I can see it, but because of it, I can see everything else. Everything else in life makes sense. The joys and the valleys, the, the triumphs and the trials, all of it makes sense in Christ. You know that he is working all things together for his glory and our good. So what do you think of him? And then he gets to this troubling statement, probably the most sobering statement in all of scripture, a very strong warning. He says in verse number 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies or blasphemes the, against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Maybe you've heard of this statement, the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin, this is a theme picked up in scripture. There is a complimentary passage to this in Luke chapter 11 in which Jesus is dealing with this exact same type of question, albeit in a different geographical location. But he says this, he says that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit won't be forgiven in this life nor the life to come. Over my pastoral ministry, I've had many people come to me and ask me, what is, pastor, the unpardonable, the unforgivable sin? Have you ever wondered that before? How many have wondered that before? A few of you. I've had people throughout my pastoral ministry be so guilt-written, convinced that they had committed it, they came to me 
for some sense of relief, have I committed to unforgivable, unpardonable sin? How do I know? Well, Jesus does not want this to be a mystery. He is saying to these leaders, you are getting dangerously close to crossing the line which there is no coming back from. As a matter of fact, I see the seeds of it in your heart. And what is it? It is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, blasphemy is a sin of the tongue. It is to take the Lord's name in vain, for example. The Bible talks about that. and Many of us have committed that sin. But he takes it in a more specific direction. No, it is the rejection of the Holy Spirit. To be more specific, it says here in verse number 30 that they were saying that he has an unclean or evil spirit. They were declaring the Holy Spirit to be evil or unclean. So what is it about this sin that makes it so grievous, so unforgivable, so damnable that Jesus says you can't recover from it. You can't even receive a pardon for, from it. Well, one theologian of old, Henry Alford, says this about the unforgivable sin. He says, the unforgivable sin or blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not a particular species of sin, which is here condemned. It is, it is a, rather a definite act showing a state of sin, and that state a willful, determined opposition to the present ministry of the Holy Spirit. The unforgivable, unpardonable sin is a willful, determined opposition to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? John in John's uh, Gospel, chapter 15, we studied it last year, said that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. In other words, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to persuade you of the Lordship of Jesus Christ so that you might put your faith in him. And if you, being offered the forgiveness of your sin, being offered relationship with Jesus Christ, being offered restoration and reconciliation to God, will willfully reject that and stand opposed to it, what other means of forgiveness is there for you. It cannot be pardoned because the pardon that God offers is through Jesus Christ. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convince us through acts and through the testimony of many witnesses and through the ministry of the word that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, so that we might believe. And if you reject that, there is no more a sacrifice for you for the forgiveness of sin. You are rejecting the very pardon of God. You have become so hardened that there is no place of repentance in your heart. My prayer for you, friends, today is that you would avoid that sin, that willful rejection as the Holy Spirit tugs on your heart to put your faith in Jesus. Now, you know you have not committed the unpardonable sin if there is conviction of sin, if there is even a desire to know God, then that is signs of spiritual life. And oh, by the way, 
I don't think that this verse is meant to produce anxiety in the life of the believer. No, as a matter of fact, in the life of the believer, it's meant to produce comfort, great comfort. While many people will only see the warning in this passage, I pray that you don't miss the comfort. Did you notice verse number 28? Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven of the children of men. This is a great comfort to us. What this is saying, friends, is that all the sins of lying and cheating and lust and corruption, all the sins that I've committed, all the sins that you have committed outside of the willful opposition to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and accepting Jesus Christ, it can be forgiven. In other words, though the sin stain in our lives is real, how many thank God that the blood Bloodstained cross is greater than what we do on earth. It's not greater than what he did on Calvary. How many praise God that there is no sin that is greater than the blood? How precious is that flow that makes me white as snow? How many thank God for the blood of the lamb that saves and redeems and restores? He is not a liar. He is who he said he is. But is he a lunatic? Well, it's hard for me to even say this, but some in his family thought so much. Verse number 20, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. The Greek there, to take a hold of him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. This is steeply troubling to me. Mary was visited by an angel and was told that what is conceived of you is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, I don't know if he's here, he's not mentioned, but he had an angelic visitation as well. That tells me that I think sometimes we put too much credit for too much weight on having some ecstatic, supernatural experience thinking that that would settle it once and for all. If God would just send me an angel, I would never doubt again. Well, clearly that's not true. It's possible to even get an angelic visit and still be troubled in your faith. And I could, if I had time, talk to you about two of Jesus's brothers who have books in the Bible named after them. Jude and James, who during his earthly ministry didn't believe in him. But what caused them to go from doubters to believers, doubters to apostles, doubters to leaders of the early church in Jerusalem was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, if Jesus had not raised from the dead, his own family would have had reason to doubt him, let alone you and I. But because he is raised from the dead and it is verified historically, then we have much reason to believe him. If Christ is raised from the dead, everything else in history, as one philosopher says, is but a footnote, friends. If Christ is raised from the dead, then everything else in your life is but a footnote the biggest decision of your life is not where will I go to school, it's not who will I marry, it's not what am I gonna eat or wear today for clothes. 
The biggest decision of your life is will I follow him? And so what does he do for his family? He reorients family loyalty. We all have loyalties to people. And I will tell you this, is that following Jesus is gonna cost you socially. I came to Christ when I was 13, I was a high schooler. And one of the things that I worried about is, man, if I come to Jesus and I start living for him, will I lose friends? And I did, I lost some really close friends. Now, the good news is, later on, some of them came to know Christ. We have a relationship even to today. And they're grateful that I followed Jesus and that I share him with them. But no doubt there was a loss of relationships. It was a few weeks ago that my good friend Abdu Murray stood on this stage sharing the word of God. Some of you know his story. He grew up as a devout Muslim. For nine years, he went on a journey of studying comparative religion to see what was true. Is it Buddhism? Is it Islam? Hinduism? Christianity? After nine years, he concluded, yes, Christianity is persuasively true. It is evidentially true. But you, knew what, you know what hindered him for a long time for coming to faith in Christ? It was the fear of the rejection of his father, his family. I'll never forget about a decade ago, sitting down at breakfast with a Messianic Jewish rabbi. This is a Jew who follows Jesus. And him sharing to me, Chris, do you know the tremendous cost for Jews to follow Jesus? We will absolutely get rejected from our community. We'll become an outcast to our family. I said, knowing that, how do you evangelize? How do you witness? He says, Chris, you can only do it if you believe that knowing Christ is of greater worth than everything else in life. I wonder if you're convinced of that. I wonder if you're convinced that knowing Jesus, the one who made you, the one who loves you, the one who offers the grace and the mercy that your soul so desperately needs, the one who alone offers us a relationship with God, the one who secures eternity for us and promises peace in this life as well. I wonder if you believe that knowing him is the greatest treasure of all, that the value of a relationship with Jesus has greater valuation than all of our money, our assets, our investments, our possessions combined. Are you persuaded of that? I pray that you are. Friends, he's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. That only leaves one option. He is king of kings. He is lord of lords. And he is worthy of all of our worship. Everybody stand. I'd be remiss if we got this close to God's grace and we studied his word and we just dismissed and went about our, our day without being given the opportunity to respond to the gospel and to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Earlier today, in addition to our baptisms, two people came to Christ this morning at our 815 gathering. They said, yes, I believe. So now, across this room, I ask that you would close your eyes, that you would bow your head, block out the distractions. In the privacy of your own moment, I ask that you would search your heart. And if today you know you need to surrender your life to him, and Christians, those who are believers in him, please pray right now. 
If today you know you need to give your heart to him or maybe to come back home to him again. I'm not gonna make you make a long walk to the front, but I do wanna pray for you and I wanna know who I'm praying for. And if today you wanna know the treasure of knowing Jesus, having a relationship with him or coming back home again, I would simply ask right where you are before I pray, could you lift your hand and say, yes, I wanna give my life to Jesus. I see your hand, sir. All over this room, I see your hand, man. Keep them up, keep them up. I see your hand. I see your hand as well. Don't get this close to God's grace and leave without putting your trust and your faith in him. Choosing to follow Jesus is the best decision you will ever make. So one more chance. If today you want to give your heart to Jesus, raise your hand high. And I wanna pray for you. Father, I thank you that you see us, that you love us. And I pray that today upon profession of faith in Christ, declaring you to be Lord and trusting in your sacrifice upon, this, upon that cross and your resurrection, I pray that my brothers and sisters who have their hands raised would know the grace of salvation, that they would know your goodness, your mercy, and your love that you would make much of their lives and they, they would make much of yours and that they would bear much fruit and that that fruit would remain. And Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that we would declare the goodness of your forgiveness and the salvation that is found in Christ alone to our neighbors, to our friend, to the world, to the nations until all have heard, until Christ returns. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said a big amen and amen. How many praise God? How many praise God? Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.